Welcome to Black Body Health, the podcast. This is the show where we come together to talk about the intersection of our health and our culture. Podcasting from South Louisiana, this is Brittany Castine, preacher, pastor, political junkie, and now podcaster. And I am Ideal Ortiz, your co-host with Brittany, hailing from the Bull City and a longtime public health advocate. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, for today's Miss Us With That segment, I want to talk to you about something serious, something concerning, something that is just really outrageous. Um, There are reports um, that indicate at uh, an ICE started under the Obama administration and ramped up under the Trump administration, the notion of these uh, places across the country where immigrants are detained by ICE. Um, And so in this instance, this place in Georgia, uh, we're Mm -hmm. hearing that there are doctors who are performing hysterectomies on women uh, completely against their will. Yeah, and the whistleblower who is currently working with Project South, which is a social justice organization to bring forth these these complaints um, about several immigrant women in this facility receiving a hysterectomy without their consent. Um, There are reports that basically women are being bullied into surgery. They're not having exactly what that surgery is about explained to them. And they're waking up realizing um, that their uterus has been removed. And there just, they just aren't words to put to this, that this is actually happening in 2020. This kind of stuff has happened in our history before. We would have thought that we'd be better than this. But you would think we we'd are. be better than we, we're, we're not. I mean, let me just, since you said it's, Things like this have happened before. Uh, back in 1961, famed civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer, uh, her uterus re- was removed while a white doctor uh, was performing surgery on her to remove a tumor. Uh, mm-hmm. Even in 2018, a county hospital in Los Angeles had to uh, ha- issue an, a public apology for over 200 sterilizations of women in the 60s and 70s. Um, And so when they delivered babies because of some language and cultural barriers, they did not necessarily know what was going on. But that, again, uh, was situations where women's bodies were being completely altered without their Mm -hmm. consent. You know, that was the 60s, that was the 70s. Uh, What a shame for that to continue to happen now in year 2020, or at least in 2019, uh, according to Whistleblower's report. Um, and, and if these things are true, it's really disgusting. Um, it's, it's shameful, um, highly unethical. Um, you know, it's terrible that these women, the individuals who are detained in these facilities, not only can they not trust the government, but it's mm-hmm. clear if these things hold true that not only can they not trust the government, but they can't even trust the medical professional and other staff in these facilities. I mean, we've heard horror stories pretty mm-hmm. consistently about the deplorable conditions yeah. uh, from, from food yeah. to overcrowding um, to just other nefarious acts. And now to hear of potential forced hysterectomies. Yeah. Under, 
I mean, I don't, I guess I don't know what I should have expected. I mean, this is this we're allowing the abuse of children in cages at the border. We have these inhumane conditions for people in prisons all over the United States, quite frankly. Medical care is touch and go for these folks. And regardless of what you may think about people who are being detained or who have been uh, prosecuted for some crime and are being held in some facility, regardless of what you may think of those folks, we still have a responsibility, quite frankly, to operate at a particular standard around human dignity and safety. And that is just not happening here and i don't i don't have the language for the level of rage that i feel about this um i'm a pastor and i have the language i just i just don't want to use it right now because i'm you know listen and it might be appropriate i mean seriously i think it is i I I, I can you know what me and god are good i can ask for forgiveness uh for dropping the the words that i want to drop but you know what what is pretty much unforgivable is the treatment of these women uh in these detention facilities so so um if this is true idea what is like what are the ramifications of a hysterectomy? Like, what is that surgery, you know, do to a woman? I mean, um, I know for sure that there are changes in hormones. Obviously, the ability to have children is out of the question at this point. Wow. And so, you know, you just, it, it, to me, honestly, the biggest toll of this surgery under these circumstances is the trauma for being violated in such a way that someone would mislead you into thinking that your surgery was going to be for one thing or another. And also, I just wanna clear up that there are reports that removing a uterus is not the only thing that was done. Taking the long ovary or tying people's tubes was also being done um, or is alleged to have been done. And so right now I know that Speaker Pelosi is urging the Department of, Human Services to uh, the DHS Inspector General to investigate Wooten's allegations. Um, Wooten is uh, the name of the nurse who worked at the facility and started to really have a hard time with the questions about why are there so many of these procedures occurring in one facility? Um, And so with those questions, I think there was a crisis of conscience that led them to want to work with Project South to submit this complaint and to formally start beginning to open up um, the story about what is exactly going on in Irwin, Texas, (laughs) or in Georgia. Again, without consent. I mean, I think I've said this um, at some other point, you know, I don't care if it's removing a cuticle. You don't remove a cuticle from a woman or any other human without their consent, let alone, you know, reproductive parts. I mean, it is asinine. It's insane that it's chilling, really, to, mm-hmm. to know that we live in a country, we live in a world where this stuff is happening. And, and, and what's unfortunate is you know, there needs to be more traction around this. There needs to be more sort of universal outrage about this. Uh, we need to dig a bit deeper and make sure that uh, this is not some, uh, you know, event that's happening all across sites, all across the country. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as unfortunate as it is, I pray that it's isolated and that it's very, very limited and that we don't find any systemic issues. But like, 
we need to turn up the volume on this big yeah. time. So you can miss us with four yeah. cystorectomies. You can miss us with playing doctor and, you know, using uh, women of color and their bodies as some sort of scientific thrill or experiment, of course. Miss us with the violation of women's rights and the violation of their body's autonomy. Yeah, and miss us with trying to do stuff and act like it's not going to come to the light. We're going to find it. We're going to find out. Shout out to the whistleblower uh, for bringing this alleged uh, behavior to our attention. And let's make sure to keep the heat up so that we can make sure we do everything in our power to ensure this doesn't happen again. Yeah, these women deserve an answer. They deserve an answer. They deserve an apology. And all women deserve for this to stop and for this to have never happened. Yeah, miss us with it. Hey everybody, thanks for joining Black Body Health, the podcast. It is Ideal and Brittany here joining you with episode number seven as we take a look at housing as a public health issue. And joining us today is Jay Hamilton McCoy, who is an activist and a housing guru who's going to help shed some light on some of the conditions around housing, some of the decisions that are made uh, to keep folks in or out of particular neighborhoods, and what it is that we can do to really highlight this issue in communities all across the country. So tune in today for a really exciting episode as we take a look at housing as a public health issue. Joining Brittany and myself is Jay Hamilton McCoy. He is the James Scott Farron Lecturing Fellow and the Supervising Attorney for the Duke Law Civil Justice Clinic. In that capacity, he is teaching a seminar course, mentor students in developing and improving basic civil litigation skills, and oversees their handling of cases for indigent clients who often can't get their own adequate representation in the traditional civil justice system through the clinic's partnership with the Legal Aid of North Carolina. McCoy is a Durham native, Gobel City, and he operated a solo practice in Raleigh for years before becoming a Legal Aid of North Carolina staff attorney. And he has litigated cases in a variety of different practice areas, but he has become, as he'll tell you, the housing guy. McCoy has also served as an advocate for victims of domestic violence and has taught at both the North Carolina Central University and Wake Forest University Schools of Law. McCoy joined the Duke Law faculty full-time in 2017 and received his BA from FAMU over at Florida Agricultural and Mechanical University in 2005. And yay, he's an Eagle and he's got his JD from North Carolina Central University School of Law in 2008. Y'all, but this brother doesn't stop. He's also got two novels. He's a fiction writer and two of his books, A Family Saga, book one, Sundiata and Black's Law. And sorry, A Family Saga. Let me start that one. But y'all, this brother does not stop. He is also a fiction writer and has published two novels. His first, A Family Saga, book one, Sundiata and Black's Law, The Hellmaker. Please, please, please welcome Jay Hamilton McCoy. Hello, everyone. And we are so glad to have Jay Hamilton McCoy with us for episode seven, housing as a public health issue. People are often either healthy or not healthy based on a really complex mix of things, much of which is in the environment that they're in every day. And what place are you not more in than your home? You are at home 
most of the time. And so how your home is, is gonna be impacting your actual physical health. But we wanted to dig in a little bit more about the housing issues and access to quality housing and housing at all in this country. And we're really excited to have Jay Hamilton McCoy with us here, fellow Eagle. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your work here in Durham and beyond um, as it relates to housing? Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, I am currently the uh, Duke Civil Justice Clinic's supervising attorney and a senior lecturing fellow. Uh, and it's kind of two jobs in one. Uh, on one hand, I teach students about housing in general and about the issues that are going on off of campus because a lot of students who come to Duke aren't necessarily from Durham. Mm -hmm. They don't always know uh, what's going on and I, I just feel like they, they need to. Mm -hmm. um, the second part of this is I have a job of trying to train those students into becoming litigators. And to do that, we focus on practice areas for which I have extensive expertise. Mm -hmm. uh, my expertise is largely in housing law. Mm -hmm. um, even though I've, I've had forays in about every aspect of law that you could possibly imagine, uh, housing law was something that, you know, when I first entered into this arena, uh, there weren't many attorneys uh, involved in. And that's for a couple reasons. Uh, one, oftentimes when we think of landlord tenant issues mm -hmm. and you think about a tenant you always think the negative, like the tenant didn't pay rent. That's why they're being evicted. Mm -hmm. Rarely do people stop to look at kind of underneath the surface what's going on there. Mm -hmm. And so if a tenant, you know, typically can't pay rent, most times they wouldn't be able to afford counsel. Uh, and so I was blessed to be in positions where I was able to help people without having to charge money while I was working at legal aid. Uh, and what I realized is there were a lot of people at that time in Durham who were living in places that had substandard habitability concerns. Uh, there were people who were living in places that were taking advantage of them and charging them amounts that they weren't legally entitled to get. Um, and I was also dealing with, of course, the, the monster that is the, the politics behind the housing authority and how housing authorities operate versus how people think they operate. Mm. Uh, so in all these things, I ended up being kind of the housing guy at uh, Legal Aid's Durham office. Uh, and I say the housing guy because there was only one housing attorney and I had all the cases that, that came through. Oh my office. goodness. <laughs> you know, and Durham has been quick on evictions. We, we actually have been leading the state in evictions for quite some time. Wow. Um, but at the same time, it's like, you do what you can. So that's, that's what, kind of brought me into this. And what I realized very quickly is um, people are very appreciative when they can sit down with someone and understand how all these processes work and um, also get some kind of justification. It's important to be heard when you're complaining about bed bugs, roaches, mold, sewage leaks. Um, oftentimes it wasn't that people weren't complaining before. It's just that there was no force to make anybody do anything because they didn't know their rights under the law. So that's kind of how I got involved in all this. I mean, I was going to ask you if you want to go into more detail about what kind of conditions around ha habitability are you seeing in your clients? Like when you see, you mentioned a few just now, just the bed bugs, 
and the issues with sewage. My God, I mean, to think that we live supposedly in the richest country on earth and that we are still talking about housing with sewage issues. That just seems unacceptable to me. And on top of that, I'd love, I'd be interested as you dig into that Mm -hmm. to sort of give us the profile of the type of people who Mm -hmm. are um, living in these conditions and, you know, how do you think it got that way? You know, let's, let's let's dig deep. I'll I'll start with the conditions. I mean, at this point, I feel like I've seen it all. So I've dealt with properties that have snake infestations, rat infestations, roach infestations, bed bug infestations, uh, mold, structural integrity issues, lots of plumbing issues because plumbing and mold go hand in hand. Uh, I've even represented a client in a case where they had electric sockets that every time they tried to plug something in, the house caught on fire. Uh, oh my God. So I think at this point, I've, I've seen probably just about everything. I think most recently we've seen uh, carbon monoxide uh, issues. Yeah. So uh, I've, I've had a variety of those things. What I'll say is the clientele for housing is very interesting. Um, I I do talks across the nation just addressing eviction-related issues. And everywhere I've been, it doesn't matter what city it is. It doesn't matter what the percentage makeup of the demographics in that city is. It seems to me that it is always a crisis for Black and brown communities Mm. who are the ones who are being evicted. You can go to any small claims court or any eviction court in America, and the people you're largely going to see disproportionately are going to be Black. See, and this is why I just, you know, whenever you see these outcomes, right, these babies who go to school frustrated, um, folks who can't focus, um, you know, Black and brown folks who are dealing with all these medical issues, it's so easy for folks to point the finger and say, you know, if you just took care of yourself better. But my God, if you are living in these kinds of conditions, what exactly do people expect if this is the housing that is available to you? And I don't even I, I don't even want to think about it, but we have to ask, you know, where I mean, don't people have options? Can't they can't they just get an apartment that or a house that isn't infested with mold or bugs or catching on fire? Well, you know, to to answer that question, I have to dig back into the history of this. Okay. So part of the reason why we are experiencing these issues is because a lot of people have been precluded from involvement in the capital building market. What I mean by that is people have been inhibited in being able to access capital needed to own. Right. Mm-hmm. So this isn't something that was just, you know, created overnight. This was government backed support for segregation uh, and government backed support for programs that were that included predatory lending terms for our communities, mm-hmm. redlining. Uh, and that basically influenced the banks to not give yeah. people the capital they need to own. So when you can't own, ultimately what happens is you you rent. Right. And when you rent, a lot of factors go into that. Uh, one one such factor is, you know, what can I afford? Mm-hmm. So what you could afford yeah. in 1992 in Durham, North Carolina, is vastly different from what you can afford in 2020. However, your salary may not be right. Mm-hmm. So as yeah. areas become more popular throughout the United States, um, you know, 
capitalist landlords come in and they want to make money and there's nothing wrong with that. Well, well no, that's a, that's an interesting term. Uh, you said capitalist mm -hmm. landlords. Uh, that's cute. Now, uh, is that is that the same thing as, as you know, gentrification? Uh, is that sort of how that happens? It, it can be. It doesn't necessarily have to be right because landlords are not a monolith. They right. are engaged in, in the process of trying to provide people housing, but that housing does have a cost and it's not just the cost for the tenant. Oftentimes right. the landlords carry mortgages themselves. Mm -hmm. They're trying to offset that. They will want to turn a profit. I think that there's a difference between your garden variety mom and pop landlord versus some big Texas corporation that owns a whole bunch of properties in the area and doesn't really have local ties. Um, so I think, you know, part of this is an understanding of the fact that that politically these forces are put against each other. We're made to believe that it's either landlords or tenants and that's all it is. And what we see is this division only gets exploited and exacerbated in periods of crisis. So with COVID, what has happened is landlords have been upset largely with tenants for not being able to pay rent and feeling like they're left on the hook for their mortgages and the things that they have to cover, not understanding that this, these measures that have been put in place over the past few months wasn't necessarily designed to protect tenants. It was designed to stop the spread of COVID-19. And mm -hmm. because it was different, it just so happens that it benefited the tenants because it kept them housed on that temporary basis. But it's actually a failure of government to not support that continued housing with financial assistance that would cover the landlord's expenses. So I'm really interested, and 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 that's really great. I mean, you know, we have certainly a bunch of failures uh, within our government system, uh, according to my observation. Mm -hmm. Right? That's that's my view. That's Whitney's view for sure. I was I've been long interested in this, and I don't know if it is sort of my own made up theory or if it's connected to anything in reality. But it seems to me that um, African-American, at least historic African-American neighborhoods um, are, are high real estate value places in major cities all across the country. Uh, and so it seems to me that in a lot of those areas, um, black folks are being um, pushed out, coerced out, bought out, um, taxed out uh, in favor of some new hip persons or corporations to begin um, putting up some other housing or even just, you know, uh, taking over in, entire blocks at a time. I, I've seen that so many places. That it, you, clearly, it was major in um, New Orleans after mm -hmm. Hurricane Katrina. Of course, it was major in the Washington, D.C. area where I've lived and worked for a number of years. And we're we're hearing more and seeing more of that happening where entire black and brown neighborhoods, historic neighborhoods, um, um, neighborhoods that at one point were the hood, but all of a sudden are becoming uh, very, very valuable um, with respect to their real estate. So what are your what are your thoughts on that entire process? Is there anything that you know, folks need to know about that. Are there ways that they can sort of guard themselves against that? What well, the, the main thing is to identify how we got here, right? So one of the reasons why these urban centers have became black was the flight of white people from the city. That's uh, right. At a time when the government was willing to fund 
purchases of homes in suburban areas, uh, those those areas grew and black people who were largely running from areas of the South where they were unsafe and unprotected were coming into these centers for jobs and opportunities that they didn't previously have. And not so, just, they didn't just get funding for the housing. They mm-hmm. also got funding for the transportation systems to get them there. The highways Absolutely. that completely demolished black communities and their business districts en route to the neighborhoods of choice for white folks. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what happens is you have a higher concentration of minorities in areas that were unwanted, essentially, at that time. But, oh, how things change, right? So now the push is for those city centers to be developed. They're trying to attract new uh, commerce from other interests outside of the community. They want to market this place to be so great. And part of this is the trick of real estate. The trick of real estate is that when they don't provide your area of town with services that the community has been requesting for decades, then what happens is all the stuff we expect. We expect that the crime rate is going to increase when you're not bringing jobs, when you don't have suitable education, when you don't have opportunities for growth, then of course the crime rate goes up. Well, what happens when the crime rate goes up? Your property value goes down, right? That's right. And so, and property values going down also mean less money for schools, jobs like good grocery stores with fresh fruits and vegetables don't want to locate to your area. They're not building new parks in your community. Your sidewalks are crumbling. All of these things are part of an ecosystem that does not lead to good health outcomes. Absolutely. And once that land gets cheap, then a a a prospective developer is going to say, well, I can buy however many acres for dirt cheap. Why wouldn't I do that? And I'm going to buy it, Mm -hmm. build it up, flip it, turn it into rental property, have people paying me way more to live here than before. They know that the people who already were there probably can't afford those new rent rates. Like uh, they have new places in Durham that are like fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars a month. The, the regular Durhamite can't afford that, right? But they're not pitching to the regular Durhamite. They're pitching to someone else who they want to come in and live in that area. Mm-hmm. One one thing I want to say, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about tenants unions mm-hmm. or tenants mm-hmm. organizing together and asking. Um, for more protection, right, through their own advocacy. And I'm really drawn to the language of the LA Tenants Union. They have this manifesto of sorts, right? Um, And I read this thing and this thing just, I just felt like my mind got blown by the way they're framing this issue. And I wanna read three lines from it. And each, this, this document, if anyone's ever interested in it, literally has 101 specific sentences. (laughs) it's written in like each sentence is a bullet and that's it they don't want this to seem over anyone's head they don't want this to turn into um a document that doesn't seem to hold people in you know the power of their words so here are the three things that i want to and they're really close to the top of this document but the first one is there is no housing crisis Housing is not in crisis. We don't have a housing crisis. We have a tenants' rights crisis. Wow. So, I mean, I just, that thing just slapped me in the face. Mm. It's deep. You know, a, a tenant can be harassed, evicted, displaced, broke, undocumented, fed up, 
or organized. I love that, you know, because it's it's helping us understand that like the housing, the brick and mortar of a thing is not what is being harassed here. It's people. Absolutely. In the middle of all these systems, my God. Um, and so, you know, we've talked a little bit about, you know, the history of all of this. And now here comes COVID and the CDC has had a few things to say about housing, quite frankly, as a tool, right, of public health mm -hmm. to stop the, the spread of COVID. Um, can you share a little bit more for those who may not know a little bit about what the CDC just said or did in, in regards to having a moratorium on evictions here as of late? Absolutely. Just as the national sort of or our, our local protections on moratoriums has just ended, people were getting really worried about, well, what's going to happen? Because it's not like the pandemic is over. Absolutely. So um, yeah. I want to go back a little bit. Over sure. the summer, there was this thing called the CARES Act. Mm -hmm. uh, and the CARES Act governed a lot of different things, not just housing, but the housing elements for it were that if you were a person who was receiving federal subsidy for housing, or if you were a landlord who had a federally backed mortgage, then you were prohibited from being able to evict up until July 25th. Mm -hmm. The last remaining provision was that after July 25th, if you still wanted to evict, you had to provide a 30 day notice. So that 30 day notice would have taken you to August the 26th. Mm -hmm. And the tsunami of evictions that everybody was anticipating is based on the fact that the CARES Act didn't necessarily provide funding to supplement the landlords for keeping people housed, mm -hmm. uh, but it was just an act that precluded landlords from being able to evict. So landlords didn't necessarily like it, right? right. Um, on, on top of that, uh, what happened is towards the end, people said, well, if the issue is stopping the spread of coronavirus, Come August 26th, coronavirus is still here, right? <laughs> it hasn't gone anywhere. Uh, we're, we're seeing lower numbers, but it's still here. Uh, so we need additional protection. This is actually a mark of a failure of Congress to extend the CARES Act. So yeah. Congress stopped. They didn't do anything as of Didn't July. they just go on vacation? They just like, they were like, ah, and then dip. Yeah, I mean, specifically the Senate, which if you see the composition of the Senate, you probably understand why they don't care. Uh, so, but uh, anyway, the, the Senate did not do anything to extend the CARES Act. So as of um, August the 8th, President Trump enters, you know, relatively weak executive order that says, I'm going to leave it up to the powers that be to determine what they feel like is the best way moving forward. Mm -hmm. And everyone just naturally assumed that the powers that be he was referring to were those uh, federal mortgage companies, the Freddie Macs, the Fannie Mae's. Uh, and the problem is the president doesn't have any authority over them. They're independent agencies. So it really looked like it was just lip service. Nothing was going to happen. Uh, lo and behold, the people at the CDC said, hey, this gives us power to make an order, a declaration based on the public health crisis. I was about so, to say, leave it to the public health nerds. We're going to find a way. We're going to find a way. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So what they did was they entered an order that now, even if challenged, which it will be challenged, mm -hmm. uh, they entered an order that basically presumed to have authority to control private landlord tenant agreements in the name of public health. So what they have said is we are not allowing evictions for people based on failure to pay rent 
assuming that the person properly declares to their landlord their inability to pay rent, their attempt to pay rent, and if they meet certain criteria. So you can't make more than $99,000 a year, or if you're married, you can't make more than $198,000 a year jointly, which is going to cover a lot of people, right? Right. Um, And what it did is it stops evictions until the end of 2020. Now, Mm. this is very powerful. This is unprecedented, right? So the question is, how do the states interpret that? If you look at how the states interpreted the CARES Act, Mm. there were some states that didn't have their own moratoriums on eviction anyway. So if you're a state like Florida, Texas, you didn't have a moratorium. You've been back to business since the beginning. Um, So this federal law actually imposes on you to honor it, right? If you're a state that had Better, like I think Connecticut was ranked number one in the nation as far as the best uh, moratorium. Um, then <laughs> the federal government uh, moratorium doesn't necessarily impact you because you're already doing what you're supposed to do, right? Uh, for states like North Carolina, it gets really, really tricky because we had a a gubernatorial sponsored um, uh, moratorium. But it was only covering one month of rent. So that moratorium was only for June rent, nothing else. And basically, if you lost your job in March when COVID began, and let's say you're a waitress and we went into phase one and you can't go to work because they don't have dining anymore. You lost your job in March. What good is not being able to pay June? <laughs> like, what is that going to do? You right. still open March, April, May? Um, so... CARES Act did help people in those situations, assuming that their landlord had a federally backed mortgage. But the thing that helped people in North Carolina more so than anything was an act of the court system, which is the emergency directives entered by the chief justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court. And her goal was that court not be used as a place to disseminate COVID-19. So at wow, no point- that's clever. Way, very clever. But at, at no point in any of these pieces of legislation or judicial opinions or gubernatorial opinions, at no point was the focus on stopping evictions because evictions in the time of COVID are just wrong. The point was on, don't use my place to spread. That's right. That's right. Uh, don't come bring your germs to the courthouse. Right. Right. So, so the wow. court system was unable to process evictions during the summer that landlords wanted to see through because they were essentially, even though they weren't technically shut down, they were limited in the cases that they were going to hear. If it wasn't an exigent circumstance, you weren't going to get a case. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And landlords weren't happy about that because again, neither the governor's executive order or the, the chief justice's emergency directives or the cares Act provided funding to the landlord to cover the months that they're missing. And the thought process is, if you have a federally backed mortgage, it's not like you're going to be foreclosed on. But what about the landlords who don't have a federally backed mortgage? Right. What about the landlords who got private banks that are hounding them every month? Like, I need my my mortgage payment. And you're like, I I use the rent payments to cover the mortgage. And now I can't collect rent. I can't evict. I can't put somebody else in there. I'm stuck. Right. Mm -hmm. So what has happened is, the politics of this has shifted that to be a blame game. Yeah. It's the tenant's fault, 
right? Or the tenants say it's the landlord's fault. Mm -hmm. In actuality, getting back to the original point, this is this is a failure of the government to recognize the importance of housing and why housing should be declared a right for times such as this. That's right. That's right. My gosh, this thing is immense. But I can see exactly how this plays out onto the ground because, you know, I live in a rapidly gentrifying community. It's still, you know, um, pretty heavily populated with black and brown families, a lot of low income families. And I see the signs that go up talking about rent strikes. And I know that has to, to strike fear in the heart of landlords, especially those who are not those who are coming from generational wealth who are trying to do the right thing. And they're like, listen, I'm still on the hook for this mortgage. And yet the circumstances are stacked against mm -hmm. a lot of the players involved. And it's not an easy black and white conversation in terms of who's at fault. And I'm not saying to, to play softball with the folks who are clearly exploiting um, tenants, uh, mm -hmm. these folks who have led, whose, whose pipes aren't right, conditions, you know, exacerbate asthma and all these other kinds of conditions in their tenants. Um, but, you know, th there's there's a lot of shades of gray in this particular conversation. And it makes it very, very difficult to think of, you know, a silver bullet solution. There just isn't one there. As they say about, you know, the oppression is like a cage, right? It's not one bar that keeps you in. It's the it's how you collect all the bars and arrange them together to keep right. you um, in, in, in a prison. Absolutely. In a prison of circumstances, a combination of circumstances. My goodness. And so are there any bright points that we can that we can look towards or are there ways, are there strategies that people are pushing for that can bring any relief on this issue? Well, there, there are some. Um, I think that one of the things that I would want just Americans to understand mm -hmm. is much of the rest of the world recognizes housing as a right. That's right. Uh, and provides some form of housing. Now, granted, there, there are criticisms along the way, mm -hmm. but I kind of feel like it's one of those situations where it's better to criticize what people be housed than <laughs> to not act uh, and people be homeless. Uh, mm -hmm. on, on top of that, I think we really need to understand kind of the backing of our American financial system. And what I mean by that is, America punishes you for being poor. James Baldwin said it's very expensive to be poor. Mm -hmm. right? uh, and so people who have an eviction on their record, the, the likelihood that they're going to find a prospective landlord who's going to rent to them mm -hmm. is going to be low, which means that the only places they're going to be left are the places largely that people don't want to live, the places with the bed bugs, the places with the roaches, right, mm -hmm. that nobody else will pay for. And because those landlords know that they are the only game in town for you, not only are they going to charge you, but they're not going to be receptive to your complaints. Mm -hmm. And I'm really concerned when it comes to issues, particularly in the undocumented community, mm -hmm. because even complaints about bed bugs that we know have existed in these properties for at least the past five years those complaints get met, met with threats of ICE, right? I'm going to call ICE if you complain. And, you know, so at the result of that is people don't complain. Right. They just deal with it because they don't yeah. want to deal with the bigger headache. Uh, and that's what we're trying to, to weed out. We're trying to get into 
those situations and provide litigation for people who wouldn't be um, otherwise able to litigate for themselves. So it sounds to me like supporting organizations like legal aid organizations throughout the country and making sure that there's allocations of local public municipalities to those organizations for representation um, and also some resources to keep people housed in place, you know, with some financial resources, right? Um, When sums, like what's the average sum that people on average that people need in order to like make some of these issues go away? I wish I could tell you an average, but we, we get people from all over. So when we initially launched our eviction diversion program, uh, we had people who were eight months behind. We had people who were one month behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, typically, if you're within two months of being current, most times you can get help. Mm-hmm. I think the problem is that for the resources that people are using for rental assistance, you have to also be able to establish that if they provide this money for you, you'll be able to sustain the rent mm-hmm. moving forward. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately for people who lose their jobs mm-hmm. until you get another job, there's no proof of sustainability. So um, we're back to the beginning. <laughs> the beginning. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think also, I mean, we have to put some pressure on developers to make the kind of communities that we want to see in our cities. Mm-hmm. So I think developers come in oftentimes and they, don't really think about making uh, affordable housing because they feel like, why would I do that if I can get paid, right? And that's fine if that's somebody who's coming from another state and that's what they do. But I think there is an incentive for local developers to come in and know who already understand the landscape of the city, who already understand the shortcomings. There are ways for them to create spaces that will be affordable housing for the community. Mm-hmm. Um, North Carolina, and I I pick on North Carolina a lot, but I love my state. Uh, North Carolina actually forbids rent control by statute, right? (laughs) Whereas everybody else, it's kind of like, well, we have a district here where the rents won't increase by a certain amount uh, over the course of the next four to five years, Mm -hmm. right? North Carolina never had that. So when you got to the end of your lease for a two-bedroom apartment at 650, the next year the landlord's like, ooh, I'm going to need 1,000. And if you don't have it, you're screwed. Right. Um, I think the bigger issue also, and we've talked about this before, is in America, we don't recognize housing as a right. We recognize housing as a commodity. That's right. right. And there's a value system to recognizing something as a commodity. It's a haves and have not situation. If you have a nice apartment, you have luxury, you got the swimming pool. Then for some reason in America, we take that to mean I'm better. Right. But what this this uh, COVID situation has exposed to us yeah. yet again mm-hmm. is that but for the, the grace of God, something can happen tomorrow and you lose your job, mm-hmm. right? And you're going to be in the same position that everybody else is in. So we can't just think about ourselves uh, internally, about our own happiness and our own success. We have to be more community oriented. Yeah. And I think that um, when we think about, you know, the conversation on housing, so often the sort of um, tone of the conversation is that we want to say, well, then we need we need to work on everybody being a homeowner, you know, kind of Mm -hmm. pushing that agenda 
of like wealth building and all of that. And yet time and time again, historically, black folks have gotten played with that agenda mm-hmm. in this country. You know, we either don't get the loans or we do get the loan, but then it's a toxic loan, with, which is more expensive and we can't keep up with it. And then we lose all our money or we enroll in these programs where we do one thing that's against the rules or miss one little deadline on the procedure of it and we lose the money. Or mm-hmm. we get the house, but we can't repair it because we can't get other loans to maintain it in good condition, or the area that we're in doesn't appeal to banks, so they won't invest in you know the business that we need to keep up the pay on the mortgage. It is just a constant challenge. And so to me, it just rings um, in a very frustrating way to keep pushing this agenda of the master's tools, quite frankly, around housing mm. as a wealth building um, apparatus for black and brown communities, when to me, housing is about community and about health and stability rather than wealth building. But I know that that can be seen as a very controversial position. And I and I understand my own um, complicitness, I guess, in capitalism, because I am a homeowner. Um, and I under, and I've, and I've, and I own rental property and I try my best to do things that push against the tide. Like I don't do background checks. I don't do all this looking up if you've had an eviction kind of stuff. Right. Um, I, I don't ask for fees, you know, affiliated with all of that, um, with applications. I meet everybody personally myself and mm-hmm. I often choose the candidate out of people who, are looking to rent any of the spaces I own, who is least likely to get housing somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And you know what's wild about that is that that's kind of protected me during COVID times because those folks know the exact amount that they're getting paid on disability. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's not going anywhere. But that's if true. I hadn't priced my housing with the worst case scenario in mind, I'd be in trouble right now. Mm. Yep. So you do you do right and right that's right by you right so uh, I mean it's not that it hasn't been without its challenges and I think we talked about that here in the local community don't get me wrong um, but I I will say that um, you know it, it's it's not easy to do this particular model you don't have a whole lot of people to talk to about it that are going to look at you like you've got some sense because um, everybody knows I could charge double what I'm charging right now. Yeah, I mean, and, and we didn't even begin to get into like people who have housing choice vouchers that yeah. no longer have landlords who want to accept them and deal with the bureaucracy that is DHA. Um, it's it's a mess. We we have high demand. You don't know what's D- because this gets heard nationally. Like, wh- what is DHA? So DHA is the Durham Housing Authority, uh, and it's not just local to to Durham. Really, this is housing authorities across America. There's a program called the Housing Choice Voucher Program. Mm -hmm. Uh, What it is, is it's what people used to know as Section 8, where you would get Mm. a voucher to go out on the open private market, uh, find a landlord who's willing to deal with the uh, overhead for DHA and also um, deal with accepting a smaller sum of rent from the tenant directly in exchange for being subsidized Mm -hmm. through the program. That's right. Uh, but what has happened is because city centers have become so popular mm. and people are able to command such a higher rent value on the open market, uh, it's not as attractive anymore 
to try to take Housing Choice Voucher. Not to mention, you know, there are some other headaches with the administration of the program in general that a lot of landlords have expressed they just would rather not deal with and right now don't have to deal with. So what that has done is created additional demand on housing. You have more people who are walking around with vouchers that they waited for three years to get. And now that they have them, they're unable to find landlords who are willing to take them. Ooh, nothing seems to be easy for the vulnerable. And so, you know, back to your James Baldwin quote, um, and none of these things lead, it feels like, to um, a, <laughs> to any sense of hope, really, for the health piece of this as housing um, and, he and health go hand in hand so often. I, I want to thank you for all that you have shared to give us um, to think on. I feel like we're going to have to turn this topic over a little bit more, hopefully on a future um, podcast and to dig in a little bit. I, I think we've got to get to a place where we talk about more solutions and some radical ideas to get us towards health in housing. Um, and so hopefully you'll be open to that in the future. But thank you so much for giving us such a thorough update on the landscape of the history and what's currently been going on, especially as COVID is upon us. Absolutely. Thank you. And and I would be remiss in my duty if I did not also say that uh, the, the Housing and Urban Development, uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the federal agency that governs what people's federally backed mortgage rates will be, that governs um, how, how public housing is administered. Uh, that position, the head of that secretary of that department is appointed so that's why voting matters, right? Yes, <laughs> voting matters. yes we're back to that. Y'all better get to the polls because if you don't like the way your housing issues are being handled at the moment, we want an administration that will reflect the values um, that you ha you hope to see on the ground, especially Absolutely. with something as personal as housing. Absolutely. For mentioning that. That's key, Absolutely. that's key, that's key. Everybody get out to the vote. Vote, vote early, y'all. Listen to the podcast on voting. <laughs> so thank you so much, Mr. McCoy, for being on our podcast today with us. Um, you've given us so much food for thought and um, keep up the good fight. Will do. And thank you for having me. Hopefully uh, you all won't forget about me. You can call me back up here if any other housing issues come up. Absolutely. We seem to be a hot topic right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. Have a good day. Wow, that was just such an insightful conversation. We're yes. so happy that Jay Hamilton McCoy could join us to share his brilliance with us. That brother is sharp. Sharp brother, yes. I, I feel much smarter even just after this conversation. So big ups to Mr. Jay Hamilton McCoy uh, for taking us through this incredible talk on today. Uh, you know, thank you so much for those of you who joined us on today's episode, episode number seven, as we took a look at housing as a public health issue on Black Body Health, the podcast. And so until next time, stay up and stay on the lookout for what's to come. Your vote, our vote matters. Voter suppression is real, and it has always been used to silence our voices. In the upcoming election, don't let anyone steal your voice or your vote. Double check that you are still registered by visiting rockthevote.org and ask a friend if you need a ride to the polls. Not only does your vote matter, but your vote is needed. Plan to vote November 3rd or vote early if you can. We are all created equal, 
and we all have an equal voice in the voting booth. Don't let anyone stop you. Visit rockthevote.org for more information. Well, that wraps up this episode of Black Body Health, the podcast. Until next time, this is your co-host, Brittany. And ideal. You have a great day. Thanks for tuning in.